0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu.
1: Researchers test for more of the COVID variant in San Diego.
2: We saw those mutations occurring at this very specific protein. We're like, aha, maybe the virus is evolving to better infect us.
1: I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. (music) Governor Newsom's plan to reopen schools is met with both hope and caution.
3: The other encouraging uh, part of uh, what the governor is laying out is his intention and the state's intention to prioritize educators to receive the vaccine.
1: A look back at the difficult conversation the Marine Corps had this year about racism. And a San Diego movie house will help you catch up on the work of a great Hong Kong director. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Officials say the San Diego man diagnosed with California's first case of the COVID virus variant is observing quarantine. But they are still concerned that the strain is already out there in our community. Here's Dr. Christian Anderson of Scripps Research, whose lab identified the variant.
5: We have detected this lineage, but we knew because of travel patterns and because of how prevalent it is in other parts of the the world, We knew that this was also something we were going to find here in San Diego. It was only a question of when. We have now found that first case. Again, the case had no history of travel, so we know there's more. We don't know how many.
1: The variant was first detected in this country in Colorado after circulating widely in Great Britain, causing a new lockdown for much of that nation. UC San Diego and Scripps researchers were key to identifying the variant strain, and they continue to process samples of the virus, searching for any sign of the virus mutation. Joining me is Dr. Davy Smith, Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Dr. Smith, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: What do we know about that variant called B117? How is it different from the original virus?
2: Yeah, so there's a few mutations uh, that are a little suspect. They occur at the protein of the virus called the spike protein, and that's the protein that uh, engages the virus to be able to infect the cell. So if there was a mutation that allowed the virus to become more infectious, more transmissible, then it would be most likely to to occur at that spike protein. So when we saw those mutations occurring at this very specific protein, we're like, aha, maybe the virus is evolving to better infect us.
1: Is it difficult to distinguish between the two strains of the virus? What's the process involved?
2: Yeah, so the way that we distinguish between the two uh, strains is we take the sequence, we have to sequence all of the different viruses that are out there, and uh, Christian Anderson's lab and others across the world are doing exactly this. So every time we get a new case of uh, coronavirus and we get it to the right lab, we can sequence it. And once we know the sequence of the virus, then we can compare it to all the other sequences. And there's a, there's a really good uh, software now that we can look and see what the differences are.
1: When the variant is described as more contagious, what exactly does that mean?
2: So this is all from epidemiologic studies. We just, in the UK, they saw that they had this new variant, and it had these specific mutations at the protein that thought maybe it was more transmissible or infectious. And then they also saw that more people were getting that variant than other people getting the other variant. So then that meant that uh, we could suspect that that variant was most, was more transmissible than other variants. However, uh, it could be that the virus was just in the right place at the right time. It came in, it, uh, there was a bunch of susceptible people there and it spread very quickly amongst those susceptible people. So it looked like it was more infectious when in fact it just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So there's still more studies that need to be done to determine whether or not that variant is actually more infectious.
1: How did Britain discover the variant? Have they been doing testing and sequencing that we have not?
2: No, no, we we've been doing the sequencing. They've been doing the sequencing. People in China, every place around the world has been sequencing their variants, and we've been looking specifically at the different mutation patterns that have been occurring. And they uh, identified this new variant, and it happened to start to rise in the number, the proportion of the number of cases. And they're like, "Aha! This might be a variant that has." become uh, more evolved uh, for us, right? So since jumping from a bat into humans, the virus is trying to figure out how best to infect us. And perhaps uh, this mutation is one of those ways that the virus is learning.
1: There have been complaints, though, that the US is not testing these viruses as much as other countries, haven't there?
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, so you know, to, be, to be honest, uh, th- th- this uh, strain that we found here in San Diego was done by academic labs right, um, and not by um, the CDC or uh, governmental uh, agencies. It's, it, it's going to require all of us. But uh, for sure, we're not been, we have not been testing enough from the very beginning, and we haven't been doing enough of this sequence surveillance um, that detects these sorts of mutations and detects when these new variants uh, come up.
1: What are UC San Diego researchers doing to search for more possible cases of the variant?
2: Good question. So we're doing the regular surveillance of people when they become infected. We uh, sequence, uh, we collect that virus, we isolate it, then we sequence it. We also can go back and test it in the lab. And that's going on now to see if it's quote, more infectious in a a petri dish, so to speak. Um, Then the other thing is to actually for this particular case is to go da- back and do contact tracing so who who was this person in contact with do they are they infected can we go and sort through the chain of uh, viral infections to see uh, where exactly this virus came from
1: okay so we don't know definitively then that this is the same variant that they experienced in the UK is it possible it mutated here in the US
2: it is it is very much possible that this virus mutated here in the US. Um, There's there's tons of virus in our community. There's tons of virus in the United States. And that virus is evolving here, just like it's evolving in the UK, and it's evolving in every place else in the world. And if it makes a mutation that uh, makes it what we call more fit, i.e able to transmit faster, it could evolve that same mutation here just as well as it could uh, someplace else.
1: Do we know doctor if the vaccines developed for the original virus will protect against the variant?
2: We do not know whether or not the vaccine will protect from this variant, but there's no reason to suspect that it won't. So this virus did not evolve at a time when lots of people were vaccinated. So it's very unlikely that this mutation in this virus was around Uh, that the virus was trying to escape responses that were made by the vaccine.
1: Now, health officials say that because the San Diego man who has tested positive for this variant has not traveled recently, that must mean the virus is circulating in the community. If that is true, what should we expect to see? Uh,
2: well, it, there is virus circulating everywhere. It's not just this variant, but the, all the other variants that are out there as well. So I think we're still in the midst of a very, very tough summer, uh, tough winter. And if this variant is more infectious and it's circulating wildly, um, then we're going to just see more and more and more of this variant uh, in people who become infected. Um, it's just going to make the winter even rougher than it is.
1: Is it possible this variant diagnosis could be an isolated incident?
2: It could be. Um, it could be that this was an evolution that happened in this person or maybe a few people, and we were able to contain it um, in this group and it won't get out broadly. Um, that would be great. Um, but if it did evolve, then it's more it could happen again uh, on its own or it could have already gotten out and spread. Um, in our community.
1: Okay, so Southern California is already under a stay-at-home order. Uh, Many workplaces and businesses are closed. No public events are taking place. We're wearing masks, distancing, staying inside as much as possible. So uh, as an infectious disease expert, what more could we possibly do to try to keep this virus and this variant from spreading?
2: Yeah, so if this variant is more infectious and able to spread more than we need to really double down on the mass and socially distancing and not gathering for the holidays. Um, Unfortunately, we were already starting to have uptick in cases before Thanksgiving and then Thanksgiving people wanted to see family and friends and there were less socially distancing gatherings going on and happening indoors and that's the surge that happened um, that we're in the midst of right before Christmas. And then I think that that uh, fatigue of socially distancing and Um, gathering etc happened also during those holidays and that's what we're seeing going to be seeing this week. Um, I'm actually on service uh, this weekend at the hospital and it's going to be a really rough time but if this variant is more infectious then we're going to have to really double down and be good about our using our masks and uh, not getting close to one another and not being inside with other family members and friends.
1: Okay, then I've been speaking with Dr. Davy Smith, Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Dr. Smith, thank you. Stay safe and ha- try you. to have a happy new year. <laughs> yeah,
2: you too. Happy new year.
6: As the state hits record deaths from the coronavirus and scientists discover a more contagious variant, Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a plan for students to go back to the classroom.
2: It's never too soon by definition to talk about getting our students
4: back into the classroom.
6: Starting next spring, Newsom proposes reopening schools in phases, beginning with the youngest students and those who've struggled most with distance learning. The governor is also promising $2 billion in state aid for testing, classroom ventilation systems, and personal protective equipment. Joining us to discuss the announcement is Richard Barrera, the San Diego Unified School Board President. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Uh, what's your reaction to the governor's plans for a phased reopening of schools beginning in February?
3: Uh, we're, in, we're encouraged by it. We sent a letter to the governor in early November that was signed by the leaders of our district, but also the other large urban districts in California. And what we asked the governor to do is to come up with a set of statewide standards Uh, that would ensure the safe reopening of schools. And what we've seen in the governor's plan that he announced yesterday, uh, were many of the core elements uh, that we had uh, advocated for in that letter. And foremost among them is the critical importance of regular testing. So, you know, we developed a partnership with UCSD uh, a couple of months ago, that is designed uh, to be able to provide testing for every student and every adult on campus every two weeks. And we believe that that level of frequency of testing is not only necessary uh, to protect the health and safety of uh, people who are on campus, but is also maybe the uh, most important strategy to allow schools to open and to stay open. And, and in the governor's proposal, he is uh, acknowledging the critical need for testing at that scale. And so we were encouraged to see that. The other encouraging uh, part of uh, what the governor is laying out is his intention and the state's intention to prioritize educators to receive the vaccine. And so if we could, as we work through this plan, Uh, If we could get to the point that we can vaccinate every educator who needs to be on campus uh, when students come back for in-person learning, and if we can be doing testing at the frequency uh, that's necessary to allow us to know who has the virus, uh, you know, when somebody comes onto campus, we think those two elements, uh, if we're able to be successful, uh, will Uh, be the most important steps forward in allowing us to uh, get our kids back in our classrooms and to keep them there.
6: Given there's a new, more contagious variant of the virus circulating in San Diego, uh, do you have any reservations about the timing of this announcement and the proposal to reopen schools for in-person learning?
3: Yeah, of course. You know, we're obviously in a situation where the virus is frankly out of control. And we're not only seeing the, you know, case rates uh, you know, explode. We're not only seeing, you know, positivity rates of people who are getting tested uh, at, 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 you know, levels that are much too high, but of course, we're also seeing overwhelming of our healthcare system. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, Jade, a lot of this comes down to if you are a teacher or a cafeteria worker or a bus driver or principal, you have to have confidence that if you come back onto campus, or of course, a parent you know, of a student, you have to have confidence that it's going to be safe. And right now, all of the indications are going in the, in the wrong direction. So, so that's why we keep coming back to these critical you know, strategies around vaccination and around testing. So if we are vaccinating the adults who will be on campus, And then, if we're testing at you know uh, at at a high enough level of frequency that we can know and have confidence that we know who has the virus and who doesn't on campus, those are the best strategies to build confidence, you know, among our parents and educators that it it would be safe to return. So the governor has laid out his proposal, and we appreciate that. But now we you know we need to work with the governor and we need to work with the legislature. To make sure that the vaccination schedule is accelerated, and to make sure that there's enough funding uh, to provide you know the level of testing that's required. Because if we cannot do those things, then y- you know you can understand why parents or educators would not have confidence that now is the right time to return to in-person learning.
6: I mean, and that brings me to my next question. Keisha Borden, president of the Teachers Union at San Diego Unified, said, quote, hospital morgues in San Diego are near or at capacity. Ambulances are being turned away from hospitals. It doesn't make a lot of sense to incentivize the reopening of schools with predetermined timelines when our community spread is at such concerning levels. What's your reaction to
3: that? No, I, I 100% agree with Keisha's statement. You know, it is it is unfortunate that the um, framing of the governor's plan is around this idea that, you know, schools need incent, financial incentives to reopen. Look, what we need is to know that it's going to be safe to reopen. And then, of course, we need the state to provide the funding that's necessary to pay for, you know, the things that, you know, the governor went over, uh, ventilation of classrooms, You know, masks, PPE, and testing, all of those things are critical. And and the vaccination schedule is critical as well. But, you know, without those things in place, you know, I I 100% agree with Keisha that, you know, just hoping that uh, it's safe to return to the classroom in a time when the healthcare system is being overwhelmed by the virus. That's not going to get it done. That's not going to be what is necessary uh, to get kids back in school and to, and to have our schools remain open.
6: Now, the reopening plans set a case rate that a county has to be under in order to reopen. San Diego County doesn't meet that metric. So um, how confident are you that it will come spring?
3: Oh, there's no reason for anybody to be confident in that. You know, we were talking about, uh, you know, getting below 28 cases per 100,000 right now. I think San Diego County is at about 38 cases. The public health experts that we talk to believe that, that those case rates will rise, you know, in, uh, in January as a result of holiday travel So, you know, there is absolutely no reason to believe that our county or, you know, and then you think about counties like Los Angeles and others that have higher case rates, you know, uh, are going to be in position to reopen. So, again, what we keep coming back to is, you know, let's not talk about these sort of arbitrary timelines. Let's talk about getting our educators vaccinated, uh, providing the funding for testing, those are the strategies that are going to keep people safe and you know and when this uh final plan is approved by the legislature we hope that the focus is on uh those uh strategies rather than uh, just setting arbitrary timelines that you know frankly jade we've seen these kinds of timelines before and they just haven't panned out and that's because nobody can predict what's going to happen with the virus um, but right now, you know, what uh, public health experts are predicting is that the rates are going to get worse, you know, before they get better.
6: And as we mentioned, the governor is proposing an additional $2 billion in funding to help schools with necessary upgrades and PPE to make them safe. Is that enough?
3: We don't think so. First of all, we're troubled by uh, the fact that that $2 billion is coming out of the, um the uh, all, you know already in place budget for education you know what uh, folks call the prop 98 budget um we can't rob from Peter to pay Paul to do this you know we're going to need um, a lot of resources to help our students with learning loss to help our students overcome you know the social and emotional challenges that they've faced over the course of this pandemic. so we can't take money that's necessary for supporting students uh, out of the pot and use that. You know, to pay for things that are really health and safety issues like testing and PPE and masks and ventilation. That should come on top of the funding for uh, uh, for schools. We also are skeptical that two billion dollars is really enough to pay just for the testing that um, that the, you know that needs to be done at the frequency that the governor has laid out. We agree with his point about, you know, the need for uh, frequent testing. We don't think two billion dollars is enough to cover it. The state actually just got over a billion dollars from the federal government as part of the COVID relief uh, package, specifically, you know, for testing uh, and contact tracing. We believe the state should first tap into that, uh, you know, pot of funds and then look for other funds on top of the regular education budget uh, to pay for, uh, you know, testing and the and the other strategies that are necessary to keep people safe.
6: I've been speaking with Richard Barrera, the San Diego Unified School Board President. Richard, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much, Jade.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or Hohenmotors.com.
6: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Across the San Diego Unified School District, kindergarten enrollment is way down this year. Kids doing kindergarten remotely are supposed to learn to read, follow a teacher's instructions, work with peers, and stay on schedule all for the first time and without the structure of being in a classroom or the patient guidance of a teacher. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser says this is exacerbating inequalities that already exist among families who can afford to hire a tutor or have a parent around and those who can't. What's a good word that starts with a jelly je? Jelly bean. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
7: it's very quiet in the Ramos household as four kids sit and work on their laptops. The living room has been completely remade into a classroom. There are word cards on the floor, charts on the walls, and a giant timer to help the kids stay on schedule. It smells like warm muffins, and pretty soon, the kids stop to take a snack break. Is your class all done? You should have filled out the table, and you should have
8: talked
7: Two families are in this learning pod. They've paid a private tutor $2,500 a month to guide their kids through online lessons each day Plus, come up with extra activities. She moves between the kids to
9: see if they need help. The first day, the kindergartners, their face was just like, what's going on? Like, actually, one of them was even like on the verge of tears.
7: There are two kindergartners in this learning pod, and she says they especially need her help. They've never been in school before and are learning to read, follow a teacher's instructions, even do gym class
9: all remotely reading workshop writing workshop um, they have kind of a checklist of independent activities they have to do every
7: day that's true across the school district but for families without extra help it's really difficult to handle
9: when we first started this the zoom classes it was a disaster
7: dania hernandez's daughter jasmine is in kindergarten in north park she can't work from home so her plan was to have her mother help
9: jasmine with online school you know there was there was times where my mom was telling Jasmine to sit down and just pay attention to the teacher and she was like no but the teacher is telling me to stand up.
7: So then Hernandez brought in her cousin who takes night classes in college to help guide Jasmine. It's better, but there're still lots of issues.
9: She had a couple fits because she was like I know the answer, I know the answer,
7: but there's there's too many kids. Hernandez is worried about her daughter being so stressed out but also about her falling behind.
9: I I thought about just pulling her out. I'm just like, okay, maybe I just pulled her out. But then at the same time, I'm thinking, no, maybe just a little bit that she's getting, or maybe the assignments and the the one-on-one that she's getting from my cousin, it is helping her.
7: Across the district, kindergarten enrollment is way down there ended up being about 2,500 fewer students than expected, and two-thirds of that drop were kindergartners.
3: In some cases, you know, we think parents are making a conscious decision to not enroll uh, their students, Um, but we think that there are other cases where You know, parents just might not be clear about the process.
7: Richard Barrera is vice president of the San Diego Unified School Board. He says the district is trying to find families of kindergarten students to get them
3: signed up. That's a challenge because if a student is not in our database right now because they've never been enrolled in our district, we might not actually know who they are.
7: Getting students enrolled in school may benefit them, but it won't fix the huge inequities online learning is creating. While some parents like Hernandez are thankful if their kindergartners can just get a little learning that something is better than nothing, others are launching ahead in their kindergarten curriculum.
9: I feel like Maya and Kaya are learning to read. Yeah.
7: Nicole Ramos is one of the moms in the learning pod we visited. She says all things considered, it's going really well.
9: The kids every morning wake up and they're just they're excited for
7: school. They're excited to see their friends. In fact, even if her kids' school reopened, she's not sure she would send them back because she doesn't want to disrupt the routine they've established. Claire Tregasser, KPBS News.
1: The Metropolitan Transit System got a new CEO, Sharon Cooney, after the sudden death of her predecessor in May. She spoke with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen earlier this year about her priorities as she navigates the COVID-19 pandemic and tackles several new projects
10: to improve public transit in San Diego. Sharon Cooney, thank you so much for speaking with us.
9: Oh, thank you for having me.
10: So you took the helm at MTS in a time of real crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic has hurt your ridership, it's hurt your finances. What are your priorities as you try to navigate this really difficult time?
9: It's been a challenge, but you know, it's been great being part of such a great team at MTS. Um, We get through it together. I think one of my highest priority is to continue with the excellent level of service that we've provided um, pre-COVID, to make sure that we continue to be the best uh, transit agency um, to continue to reach all of the goals for things like ridership, um, as people come back to work, make sure that we have a really great on-time performance, Um, all of the things that matter to people when they're choosing transit for their commute and their, their daily lives.
10: What are the biggest barriers to recovery for MTS?
9: Well, I think the big challenge is making sure that our customers and our employees are safe. I mean, that's a high priority as well. Um, It's underlies everything we do. Uh, We want to make sure that, for instance, if somebody has to now start going into work as the economy opens up, they choose transit because they know we are a safe alternative to an automobile. We've been doing everything from using foggers that immediately disinfect the vehicles to uh, making sure we have germ barriers to protect our drivers on the buses we're we're putting those in as we speak and we'll have the fleet done by the end of august Um, we are making sure that everybody's wearing a mask if you're going to choose transit you're going to wear a mask and so um, if you don't have one we'll provide one for you um, to use as well
10: I want to ask you about your fare enforcement policies. This has been under scrutiny a little bit. The Voice of San Diego has reported on uh, a big surge in in fare citations that have been issued over the past couple of years, um, how sometimes failing to pay a $2.50 fare can spiral into hundreds of dollars in fines and court fees and things like that. What does that tell you? Does this concern you? And what will fare enforcement look like under your leadership?
9: So uh, we've already begun working with the board of directors and through our public security committee, our chair, uh, Monica Montgomery, um, has really helped us drive forward a couple of new policies. One of them is a diversion program that will start in September. Uh, What this will do is it allows people a chance to, first, if you are approached and you don't have a fare on board trolley, we're going to um, allow you to buy your fare. Um, but then if you can't then um, you can uh, expunge the um, potential citation and you have hundred and twenty days to do so. Um, so the diversion program is intended for those who for whatever reason couldn't pay for their fare or didn't pay for their fare um, but that they could avoid having to go through any kind of um, procedure um, administrative or otherwise. Um, this, this I think will be a really helpful for those who feel like they've been somehow being harmed by the way we were doing fair enforcement.
10: Your predecessor, Paul Jablonski, passed away really suddenly in May, and you had worked with him for many years. What did you learn from him?
9: Well, I learned a lot about transit, obviously. I wasn't in transit before I started here at MTS, um, but I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts. But I think more than that, I think I learned the value of team building And really understanding that it's not just one person, it's everybody pulling together to become the most effective, excellent transportation system that we possibly could be. So that's what I learned from him, and um, I'm hopeful to bring that forward in my own leadership.
10: All right, well, Sharon Cooney, thank you so much for speaking with KPBS.
9: You're welcome, and thanks for having me.
6: This year, the Marine Corps banned the Confederate flag on military bases around the world. It was the first step in what's been noted as a difficult conversation What about racism in the Corps. Marines say this conversation has never been easy. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story.
4: I sit up Look at me now. From
11: the time Marines enter boot camp, they're told that the service is colorblind. There are no white
12: Marines, brown Marines, or black Marines. Everyone is Marine Green. That statement I'm I'm totally against, Um, and I I explain it to a lot of the leaders.
11: Stefan Williams runs a leadership training firm in Jacksonville, Florida. He joined the Corps in 1993 and retired in 2014. During that time, Williams facilitated many conversations on racial bias. He still works with Marine units
12: as a consultant. When you tell people that, hey, you're all green. It's just like saying I don't see color. If you don't see color, you don't know who's on your team. So I have to know that. Hey, as an Asian Marine, I know the cultural challenges you're going to have in the Marine Corps.
11: Williams, who is African American, remembers walking into an empty barracks.
12: His new roommate had a Confederate flag on the wall. I told him, Hey, listen, this is not going to work out. Uh, I'm going to have to leave. And they they pulled me out of the room. I got a different roommate. But later on, that person was actually. Um, court martial for, for actively recruiting into a racist organization.
11: Early in his career at the time, Williams says he didn't think about reporting the incident to his command. He feared he would be the one to get into trouble. Other Marines felt the same way. Francisco Martinez Cuellas is from San Diego. Originally from the Dominican Republic, as a kid he was attracted to the macho image of the Corps. He remembers talking to a friend of his in his unit who was consistently being singled out for extra duty. They both agreed it was for one reason. His friend was black.
4: And I actually remember talking to him and and apologizing to him. And it got me really emotional because I I didn't do
0: anything about it. You know, I didn't speak up.
11: In conversations with a number of retired Marines, it's a common story. Ten years ago, Travis Hoare was at an isolated post in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Like Hor, most of the unit was white. He remembers fellow Marines repeatedly complaining about their African American corpsman, the Navy term for medic, or says he remembers defending the corpsman after seeing him help save the life of an Afghan woman. So why are you giving him a hard time? Kind of deal. Um,
2: probably not as much as I should have in retrospect, but
11: um, like again, I was young and I. Stefan Williams, the retired Marine who still works with military leaders on issues of race, says it's still a difficult conversation to have.
12: First, let me tell you why people don't say something. They look at what they're willing to lose to do the right thing. You know, do I want to lose this if I, if I speak out? Because those people are, are actually factors in your, in your career. If you're going to get promoted, if you're not. If you're going to get to duty station if you're not. How long you're going to be with them, how hard they're going to make it for you. So it's very, we a little different because a lot of people have power around us. But we talk about intestinal fortitude all the time and moral courage all the time.
11: Quinton Hinnett was a sergeant. He left the Marines in December after four years in the Corps. Like other Marines, Hinnett says, there has been change, but it's been slow. For Hinnett honest, open conversation is the key. It binds together people. And it binds together units
12: or shops. And when you don't have that connection of where you could talk to someone or have a friendly conversation at all times and not just be work-related, it could diminish uh, relationships between shops. It could diminish relationships between people.
11: He welcomed the ban on the Confederate flag, but he says the Corps is no worse or no better than any other American institution when it comes to handling race. Meanwhile, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper recently announced that he was ordering the Pentagon to take yet another look at how racial dynamics play out across the military. Steve Walsh, KPBS News.
6: This story first aired on KPBS earlier this year. It was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando has been tracking the career of Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai for decades. So when Janice Films restored seven of his films for a streaming collection called The World of Wong Kar Wai, she jumped on the opportunity to share some archive interviews with Wong and two of his actors. Here's an excerpt from her Cinema Junkie podcast that she hopes will inspire you to check out Wong's lushly romantic films.
8: When it comes to romance, I'm a cynic. But there's one contemporary filmmaker who can make me swoon, and that's Wong Kar Wai. Since his directorial debut in 1988, Wong has been sweeping audiences off their feet with his intoxicating style. In person, Wong cuts a romantic figure with his spiky haircut, a cherished cigarette smoldering between his
5: fingers, and ever-present shades. And he's very mysterious on the set. I don't know... What happened behind those sunglasses? <laughs> Maybe he's sleeping.
8: <laughs> That's actor Tony Lung. He's worked with Wong for more than a decade.
5: Working with him is very challenging, especially without a full script. And we develop everything I mean, in the character and the stories in the set. And it's fun to do that because not much director do movies that way. And he's so unique. And the most interesting thing is, even you, you know very well about your character after you finish all the shootings, but you will never have an idea of what the story is about because he would do that in the editing room.
8: Whipping up heady romantic cocktails in the editing room is something Wong does exceptionally well. Wong's films are not romantic in the Hollywood sense of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. His films are about an aching romantic longing. In Days of Being Wild, a man is condemned to aimless wandering in search of the woman he will love best. In Chungking Express, two young men try to forget, with great difficulty, the women who have dumped them. In Wong's world, a single moment can change a life forever, and a missed opportunity can haunt a character for the rest of his or her life. In King Express, Wong adds an unexpected charm and humor that his earlier films didn't have. Here, characters wallow in lovelorn agony in a sly variation on the long-suffering lovers of his earlier films. Wong even allows for the possibility of happiness, at least for one couple. But happiness proves elusive in his 2000 film In the Mood for Love. The film stars Maggie Chung and Tony Lung, two actors who work regularly with Wong. Chung's Li Zhen and Lung's Mo Wan move into the same apartment building on the same day and find their belongings mixed up. Despite the cramped quarters of the building and the close proximity of other people, we immediately sense the isolation of these two characters. Chung explains her relationship in the film as very romantic but painful. You feel that the love is so strong, but then there's no love. The love doesn't exist at the same time. It's all kind of like in their own imaginations. It's real and surreal at the same time for me. His films can easily be enjoyed as visual and audio sensations in which sound and image break free from conventional storytelling. They also seem like dense, Exquisitely clever music videos where image and music blend seamlessly to create a mood. And music is always crucial to a Wong film, for in The Mood for Love, he turns to Nat King Cole to set the
6: tone.
8: The fact that the song is in Spanish, yet somehow familiar, reflects the way Wong depicts romantic relationships. They can seem familiar, yet at the same time distant and removed. Combining music and image is an essential part of Wong's work. Finding the perfect match is crucial to setting the right mood, says Maggie Chung. When they were shooting in the mood for love, Wong paired up gorgeous slow-motion images with music just for the actors to watch the dailies from each day's filming. I remember we used to be in the office looking at the dailies, and he would put on the music that he's chosen for the film now, and we'd be looking at those images, and those were the first exciting images that we saw. It's like, this is it, this is it. But, you know, it's not a film. It's, it's like a montage. It's beautiful to look at, but it's not a film. But we held on to that mood all the way through for the film. But Wong's music for Chungking Express struck a much lighter note, because the lovesick character played by Fei Wong brims with dreamy romanticism.
5: I start uh, Chungking Express with the idea that I would use California Dreaming, because to me it is very much have the same spirit of Chungking Express, which is very 70s and uh, very simple-minded. All the
8: In the film Happy Together, the music that defines the central gay relationship is the tango. That South American music defines the sensual mood of the film as the lovers separate, come together, and part again. Wong cites the description of the tango as the vertical expression of a horizontal desire as the one most fitting to his film.
5: I hear the music of Piesola and I think, well, this is the music of the film. I choose the music because it is a tango music and it is more than a tango music, it is is just like a human heartbeat and and I think this is the rhythm of the city.
8: If the titles of Wong's films, from Happy Together to In the Mood for Love, sound more like the titles of songs, maybe that's because he likes to think of himself as a jazz musician and his hip improvisational films like Jam Sessions.
5: And we just like a group of musicians, a jazz band, you know, and I'm the band leader whenever I have a session. I just call up everybody and they just come over and we have a jamming.
8: The resulting films approximate jazz improvisations in their rhythms and visual riffs. Their style is characterized by handheld camera work, quick cuts, odd angles, and a distinctive blurred slow motion that's become Wong's visual signature. Stylistically, Wong uses the blurred slow motion to isolate characters. In the case of Fallen Angels, he uses it to isolate a young man's goofy obsessions. In one scene, ji Wu meets an old lover at a fast food shop. Wong lets the scene play out in a long, slow-motion wide shot, in which we see the young woman oblivious to the shenanigans of Ji Wu, who, behind her back, pantomimes a violent death, complete with ketchup bloodstains. Ji Wu's melodramatics are both comical and heartbreaking, as he fails once again to connect with the woman he once loved. (laughs) Fallen Angels typifies Wong's delirious, drunk-on-style approach to filmmaking, he began shooting with just a story outline and then improvised scenes as he shot. He also employed voiceovers to convey the isolation and loneliness of characters that sometimes only have themselves to talk to.
5: At first, it provides different angles for the characters. becomes uh, The stories consist of different point of view. Later in Chungking Express, I realized the voiceover become uh, an expression because it's just like a guy's keep talking to himself. And and I think this is very effective to, to to express something about loneliness, you know. People when people get lonely they start talking to themselves. Actually voiceover give me more space so I can round up my stories if I have different uh, happenings, you know, to make it more flexible in making the film.
8: Voiceovers allow Wong to make last minute changes long after shooting's completed. This allows Wong to tweak the romantic relationships in post-production, after he's grown to know his characters better. Wong's spontaneous approach has resulted in a cinematic style that's earned high praise. Although each of Wong's films has a distinctly different flavor, they all expand on a similar pool of ideas—love, loss, desire, and a fascination with tangled romantic relationships— Wong says that in a sense, he's just making a single epic work, with each film an added chapter.
5: I always say that I'm making a very long film. Each film I make is just like a sequence in that long film, and I'm not sure what the long film is intended to be. But anyway, I just love them more.
8: And so do I. And now you have an opportunity to enjoy them together as part of the world of Wong Kar Wai. The seven restored titles are available for the next month through Digital Jim Cinema at Home. Wong refers to these restorations as an opportunity to present them as new works from a different vantage point in his career. So whether you're familiar with his films or completely new to his work, this is a great opportunity to surrender to his rapturous
1: romanticism. The seven restored films in the World of Wong Kar Wai collection are available for the next month through Digital Gym Cinema.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit BillHow.com. Because we know how.